The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, March 6th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now is when the Democrats should be passing H.R. 1, the bill H.R. 1. This bill would require the 35 states with voter ID laws to allow would-be voters to vote if they can provide a sworn written statement affirming their identity. It will create automatic voter registration. It will require transparency for presidential inaugural committees. It will require paper ballot trails. It will push back on haphazard voting purges and a lot of other things. A lot of necessary correctives to the abuses of democracy that have gone on for partisan gain. And yet, what is the Democratic caucus grappling with? You know what? But again, uh, we were looking for Ilhan Omar there because that is a real distraction for Democrats right now from all of this uh, other things. You know, they really need to be united right now. Yep. Now, Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey was quoted in the Washington Post asking, why are we doing this? Quote, we've individually and collectively already responded to the fact that we oppose all isms that do not treat people in this country fairly and justly to continue to engage in this discussion is an opportunity to give both the media and Republicans distractions from our agenda. We've got important work to do. Yep. So we heard from the media. That was Casey Hunt on MSNBC. Here now is Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin from New York, happens to be the only Jewish Republican in Congress. Uh, And now they're going to use tactics of distraction uh, and diversion to talk about other topics uh, other than anti-Semitism. I don't know if it's right for the Democrats to chastise, strongly chastise, censure, use the term anti-Semitism or not. I don't know how much, if not most of the blame, falls on Representative Omar herself, who does seem more intent on criticizing Israel pretty incautiously than in helping her own caucus achieve its goals. What I do know is this. It is terrible politics, and it is a shameful distraction from H.R. 1. And if you want to know why I am an Obamacist, which is during the before times, what we used to call centrists or moderates, it's not because of any beliefs I have about how we frame the discussion of Israel, it is because of my certainty that this going on right now is a self-indulgent distraction from American election law, an issue where the Congress actually does have the power and responsibility to change things. I'm going to keep it short because I meant to say that and I said it succinctly. Also, I have a long spiel today. It's about Michael Jackson and truth and arguments that come in bad packages. But first, Leila Slimani is the author of The Perfect Nanny, which got inside the head of a flawed protagonist in the way that so many great novels do. Her latest, not available in English until now, is titled Adele, which is also about a woman whose society has disdain for, but whose Slimani has great interest in. So we get inside the head of this acclaimed novelist. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee 
But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leila Slimani is the author of The Perfect Nanny, which was a literary sensation of a couple of years back. And the basic premise of that book was to take a character who from the outside is a monster, is irredeemable, and not to redeem her, but to go deep and to, and to analyze and to spend some time in her head. The same thing is done with a very different kind of character, a character named Adele, who is the title of this new novel by Leila Slamani, who's here. Hello, thank you for coming in. Hello, thank you. So, we were just talking a second ago. You are a Franco-phone, you write in French, and it gets translated to English. So what is that process? Do they just give you the final version and have you go through it as if you are the editor? Uh, how, does tra- how does translating work for you? Uh, actually, Sam Taylor, he translator, uh, translated um, The Perfect Nanny and Adele. And so he sent me some emails asking me questions about a word, about a sensation, an atmosphere I want to describe or to convey. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that he understands me very well. And there is something between he and I, even if I have never met him, but something very intimate and very weird that is difficult to describe. But um, the funny thing is that for Adele, he sent me uh, an email asking me about how to describe the genitals of yeah. the, the the different characters. Because, you know, in French, you can describe the genitals by one word. is the word sex, le sex of a man and le sex de la femme. And in English, it's not possible. So we had to be more specific and to use different words. And it was very funny to choose uh, the words together. So we should say that Adele is, I think an outsider would say a sex addict, though, as the author, you don't quite make that pronouncement. And I don't know that she ever says that, but certainly her husband thinks that that's the case. So we'd have to write about these things. Do you know if the English terms, the vulgar English terms for the genitals, uh, carry the same connotation as the French terms? And the reason I ask is, in England... You can say a very vulgar term (laughs) for a woman's genitals that men call each other all the time. And it's one of the worst things you could say here. And a TV presenter, if they say that, they have to apologize. So I'm I'm wondering if it carries the same baggage and stigma in French and English, some of these terms. Um, no, I don't think so. I think that in France it's um, it's very different. And actually, when you use this word in, in France, it's me, it means that you are lucky if you have this 
thing that I won't say in French. You but, can if you want. Yeah. <laughs> you feel free. We're yeah. under no government restriction. Okay. So if you say avoir de la chatte, it means that you are very lucky. So it's positive world, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the French. Now, also, here's just another maybe perhaps lost in translation. At one point, she gets a croissant, I think, from the the worst bakery near her office. Would that be the best bakery near my office? <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's still no, bad? It it's yeah. still bad. Yeah. <laughs> have you been to... A, a bad croissant is a bad croissant. Have you been to Au Bon Pan? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no. Do you know what that is? No, but... Uh, oh, it is the McDonald's of croissants. Okay, oh my God, uh, no. <laughs> and the, the name Bon but it's very off, no, very <laughs> trivial. I don't like that. <laughs> there is a part in in where the husband talks to the wife and corrects her language about a word that happens twice. What I didn't pick up on that. What was that? Yeah, Revanche? that's um, in a certain way he wants to control his wife and he wants to educate her because she's like a child. Uh, she doesn't belong to the same social class, so she's like a, a little child, and he has to make her education. Right. So she has, um, you know, she betrays the marriage vows maybe hundreds of times over, and she does. She's very masochistic, I think we would say, if we're uh, putting labels on it. And I, he's not perfect, but I think by the definition of what you know, society says how they want the husband to act, he acts like that. And how they want the wife to act, she acts in almost exactly the opposite way. <laughs> but uh, to what extent are you blaming the husband, I guess, is the question. I'm blaming no one. That's not are. my yeah. job to no, blame anyone. As a writer, I try just to understand people, to save them, to... Um, feel empathy for them. I'm not here to blame them or to judge them. And I think that's probably why I love literature and I love to read because it's a time and a space where you can stop judging. Yeah. Because in real life, you're always judging people and putting them in a box. He's good, he's bad, he's like this, he's like that. And when you read a book, you figure it out that it's more complex and that people are more complex than those boxes we're putting them on. Well, I think you're right specifically about literature and I think it used to be true of more of the arts, but now, especially when some piece of art reaches a critical mass, man, do the critics come out saying that this literary character did not act in the right way or a way we would like them to reflect. But I do think novels still are a niche where mostly you can get away with portraying perhaps a terrible person who we would think of as terrible, not acting in the right ways, but the artist and the creator don't have to apologize for it. Exactly. And you know, a great friend of mine is a lawyer and she was the lawyer of a very famous uh, serial killer in, in France. And she was the first female lawyer to defend a serial killer. And she was very criticized uh, because of that. And she told me, you know, I'm not going to the on court and saying that he's not guilty because he is, but I want to tell his story because even monsters have story. And I never forgot this sentence. And I think that she's right. Even monsters have a story. And we have to admit and to accept the fact that even monsters are human beings and that they are um, like us. They share something with us. And as a writer, I like to, to find this humanity in everyone. Did this character, was it inspired by a news event or just the phenomenon of the sex addict, the woman who will pursue this at any cost? 
No, but just after the um, Dominique Strauss-Kahn affair, a lot of uh, French news newspaper wrote articles about sex addiction, right. saying that Dominique Strauss-Kahn was a sex addict and that it was a, a pathology and it was a disease. And so I was very intrigued by this um, this uh, this disease, and I interviewed some psychiatrists, asking them, "Is there something like sex addiction? Is it possible to be addicted to sex like you are addicted to drugs or to alcohol?" And actually, it is. It it does exist, and so I decided to write a book about a woman who would be a sex addict. So when you first heard about DSK, did you think, as most people did, well, this is just a legal excuse to uh, save him from culpability? They're trotting this out to cleanse his image in the public eye, to pathologize it and say it's not his fault? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think that it was used as a justification, maybe because, or not um, only as a justification, maybe it was the that People don't, didn't understand his life and didn't understand how it was possible that someone who has so much power, so much work, who was at the, the head of the, one of the most important organizations of the world, was at the same time um, a predator yeah. and having sex with so many women and going to hotels, very nasty hotels right. in Lilo. And so I think that sometimes when you don't understand, you want to put a label on, yes. on people. So it's easier to, to say, okay, he's like that, he's a sex addict. So it's just maybe the fact that we didn't understand him. But, you know, I remember when he tried to justify it, the word he used was libertine. I don't know if that translates directly. Yeah, libertin. Yeah, yeah. I think so, right. And it seemed to me that he was trying an elevated version of explaining his behavior. I am part of this tradition that goes back to, you know, Don Juan or, or Casanova or whoever. Uh, that wasn't flying. The public didn't really... Uh, by that. And so now the more, since we've become so pathologized as a culture, all cultures, that this sex addict came out. And I think that somehow, because when you claim some things in addiction and forward thinking people are supposed to have different opinions about addiction than they do moral failings, I think that goes further than just the excuse, oh, I'm a libertine. Mm. Yeah, but I think that there is a, a difference between libertinage and the fact that you can have a lot and a lot of, uh, of affairs of sexual intercourse, and I have no problem with that. People do what they want with their, their body. And the fact that you lose uh, the ability and the freedom to say no, that you become yes. the slave of your own sexuality. You're not in control of, uh, of your body and of sexuality. So it's not libertinage anymore. Right. Because it, it becomes addiction, like addiction to drugs or addiction to uh, alcohol, yes. because you lose this freedom to say no. It's exact. It's very much like the addiction, the difference between an enophile and a, an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> with DSK, though, um, male... And with most other kinds of addiction, you could be a gambling addict, male and female, probably similar uh, paths. You could be a shopaholic, a male mm -hmm. or female, and of course an alcoholic. With sex addiction, it's very different. And it's interesting to me that you were thinking about it in the DSK story, but your protagonist is a woman. Yeah, for for a woman, it's very different. For a man, you would say that um, he's, as you said, a don juan, and he's um, a conquistador. He's going to he needs that because a man he needs to to have sex, and his desire is so so powerful. So he needs really to, in, in French, we say to exulter. He needs to to get that um, outside of him. For a woman, it's very different. She's a slut. She's a pariah. She's marginalized. A woman who wants to have sex all the time, she has a problem. 
problem. Yeah. She's not a good woman. She can't be a mother. She can't be a sister. She can't be a wife if she's like that. There is something going wrong with her. She's she's not in her in her role in the social role we are giving her. So that's what was very interesting for me. And this word nymphomaniac. Mm -hmm. Nymphomaniac means that you're you're crazy, that you, you can't control yourself. And when you speak of uh, women, you say, control your women, behave, control yourself. And Adele is incapable of controlling herself. I hear you, and I've long heard this argument, that when a man has multiple partners, he's a stud, he's a conquistador and a woman's a slut, and that has changed. And yet, I do think that the professionals would say, and your book portrays, that the toll it takes upon a woman is actually fundamentally different. And there's a masochistic element to it with a woman. The man can be hurting himself, especially if he's making choices about his money and his time, but there is a masochistic, like, bodily hurting element to a woman who has a sex addiction that's very much present in your book. It was, it seemed to me, very much an area you wanted to explore, and I don't think you necessarily get that when you're talking about a male sex addict. Yeah, yeah, I think that you're right. That's true. And um, she wants to feel something. Yes. She just wants to feel. And when I was writing the book, one day my publisher said, you know, she wants to feel so much and she wants so much to experience something that she will, uh, of course, experience violence. And she will ask someone to hurt her. Because when you feel nothing with your body, when you can't have um, an orgasm, when when you feel nothing... At the end, you you ask for violence because you want to know how far you can you can go. Yeah. So this is a character who acts on her fantasies, I guess, but they're not fulfilling fantasies, and many of them include some form of what we'd call violence against her. And yet, several times she expresses a fear of being raped in the real world. Why? Why? Why does she have that fear? Other than the fact it's a natural fear, but why do you put it in the book and point it out so often, given the juxtaposition which how, with how she acts? Yeah, I wanted to show the paradox between the fact that she's very scared of uh, the streets, or of being alone, of um, men that she, men in the street, men that she doesn't know, and the fact that she acts in a very dangerous way, and that she puts herself in danger, and sometimes it's a... Um, you, you can act in a way that is very paradoxal, that is a, a paradox. You don't do things that are rational. I hate the idea when people say, but I don't understand. There is a contradiction between what she says and what she does. <laughs> yes, but we all have it's a like, lot have of contradictions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all have so many contradictions. And uh, as a writer, it's very interesting not to try to build characters who are like caricatures because everything is so uh, clear and so obvious. No, I want to, to, to put a a light on those contradictions because that's what makes her so human, I think. Now, we are having the Me Too movement here in the United States. I know France has a version of this. I know this from the New York Times reporting, so maybe I'm just getting it through a filter and I don't really know. But has this book, and what is the uh, what is the French version? I know Brigitte Bardot. Balance Bar ton port. Yeah, and Brigitte Bardot <laughs> said some crazy things. Um, she this, always does. Oh, that's, that's her role now. Uh, she'd be a good character. There you go. Oh, an no. Aging oh. And, and age, not just her, but someone like her. Full but of like, hatred uh, and stupidity. Yeah, just loving animals. Oh. Just likes animals yeah. so much more than people. That makes her a good person. Um, and like... Like the animals would care. But has this book been sucked up into that discussion at all? Even used in ways that maybe you didn't like? 
No, because you know, actually, the book went out in France in 2014, so it was right. long before the the Me Too movement. But uh, of course, as sometimes I ask myself, what would it be today? How would people react today? Mm-hmm. And exa- it's exactly like the Dominique Strauss-Kahn affair. I think that today, after the Me Too movement, we would react in a very different way to this uh, to this affair because when you think about it. No one in France, we, we didn't really have so many attention to the, the victim. N- no one talked yeah, about Nafisa right. Diallo. She was just, okay, she was the victim of a rape, but everyone was just about Dominique Strauss-Kahn and the sex addiction and who he was and everything. But no one really cared about this this woman. And I think that probably today it would be yeah. different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they investigated the woman. She was the, she was the maid in the hotel. Yeah. Her, yeah right, yeah. and they went to her village in Africa and it was almost like doing background yeah, research and try to, to see if know she was lying. There, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If there was a plot or... Right. Know, yeah. Now that you mention it. Oh my gosh. Leila Slimani is the author of Now Available in English, Adele, a novel. Quite a thing. Thank you for coming Thank in, you. Leila. Thank you. And now the spiel. By now, you may have had the chance to watch both parts of the documentary Leaving Neverland about the predations of the most successful solo recording artist of all time. I had a lot of thoughts about the techniques used and the focus of the documentary and issues of narration and power, but one of my thoughts never was, I wonder if he really did it. Because I don't know that Michael Jackson did it. I just know that the testimony of the two men, then boys, plus a massive amount of supporting evidence, suggests Michael Jackson molested children, specifically these two, when they were children. It's also true that every bit of evidence that is in any way ambiguous to me is easily explained without a big logical leap. These men, uh, whose names are uh, Safe Chuck and Robson, I think they are telling the truth. I think that's all over their faces. I think it's in the words. I think it's in the details. I think it's in the supporting evidence. I think it's all in keeping with what we know about child molestation and abuse and the legal system. Now, the three areas of defense are, let's give them credence. A, there are many young men Michael Jackson didn't molest, okay, like me and you, unless you're one of the ones that he did. B, that Wade Robson testified under oath that Michael Jackson didn't molest him. The question then is, was he lying then or is he lying now? The answer is he was lying then. Let us move on to see that Robson and Safechuck are after the money. I'm not saying they're not. When I interviewed the director, Dan Reed, he didn't say they weren't. Because victims of horrific abuse are entitled to compensation from their abusers. The wrongly convicted are entitled to money from the state. Users of defective products get money from companies. And people discriminated against in the workplace get money from their employers or would-be employers. By the way, the main purveyors of this argument that Safe Chuck and Robson are in it for the money are the lawyers for the Michael Jackson estate. Now, estate is a fancy word for Michael Jackson's big pile of money. And we all know that the lawyer's motivation is that they're in it in order to protect the huge pile of money. Now, that fact itself by itself doesn't discredit the lawyer's arguments or the executive's arguments. But we know that we accept it and we should price it in as it were. So if we believe the lawyer's arguments, then we are believing the argument of people being paid to argue the fact that you can't believe the arguments of people who are in it for the pay. I'll let you sit with that one. So as I said, the main purveyors of the Michael Jackson didn't do it line are the lawyers. 
well, maybe in, in the upscale precincts of media where I like to dwell. But in fact, for every white-shoed lawyer shooing away the suggestion that Michael Jackson was a monster, there are, I don't know, tens, hundreds of thousands of online enthusiasts eager to defend their idea of a hero. In some cases, these people are related to the Jackson family, like Taj Jackson, son of Tito. Here's the thing. Wade Robson was the first defense um, witness on the stand. You think my uncle molested him for seven years, he put him on the stand as his first witness? I mean, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do in front of all those sheriffs and all those people. I'd say the dumbest thing for a non-child molester who was cleared of rape at trial is to continue sleeping in bed with little boys. Here is Taj Jackson on Sky News. I can tell you I've, I've been around people where I've just gotten that energy and it's like, it's an energy that you're like, that's a bad person. I'll stay away from them. And I think, you know, if I ever felt that way about my uncle, just one hint of it, I wouldn't be here defending him. I wouldn't. Not a hint. Now, I have no reason to believe that Taj Jackson's motives are anything but sincere, sincerely believing that his dead uncle is innocent. But it must be said, to the extent that his father, Tito, or him, he is a recording artist too, to the extent that they have a public interest in their careers, it is certainly due to their association with Michael Jackson, with beloved musical superstar Michael Jackson. Once that association becomes with reviled child molester Michael Jackson, their earning potential will plummet too. It doesn't disqualify them from making an argument, but it informs the argument. Just as they say, Robson's supposed financial motivation informs their argument. There was a prominent print piece that defended Michael Jackson. It was cited in Slate and other places as raising serious questions about the integrity of leaving Neverland. Writing in Forbes, Joe Vogel argues, quote, as someone who has done an enormous amount of research on the artist, interviewed many people who were close to him, and been granted access to a lot of private information, my assessment is that the evidence simply does not point to Michael Jackson's guilt. Now, Vogel, who hadn't seen the documentary when he wrote the aforementioned sentence, has also taken to Twitter to advance his argument and to retweet what he believes are compelling defenses. He's frequently quoting people who knew Michael Jackson and saw him with children at the time, who said they never, ever thought that Michael Jackson would in any way harm a child. In other words, he's quoting people who, if they are wrong, countenance child molestation. That's a motivation there. He also focuses very much on the dynamic that this is a black man accused and the public, if they believe in leaving Neverland, are believing white accusers. Here's a quote from the Forbes article. It's no accident that one of Jackson's favorite books and movies was To Kill a Mockingbird, a story about a black man, Tom Robinson, destroyed by false allegations. That could be your favorite book, and you also could have abused little boys. This is, in fact, what I believe happened. Vogel writes, Dozens of individuals who have spent time with Jackson as kids continue to assert nothing sexual ever happened. This includes hundreds of sick and terminally ill children, such as Bella Farkas, for whom Jackson paid for a life-saving liver transplant, and Ryan White, whom Jackson befriended and supported in his final years battling AIDS. Yes, Michael Jackson never had sex with a young boy who had AIDS. Michael Jackson didn't sexually abuse Bella Farkas, who I looked into this, he apparently met twice, one while Bella was in a hospital, and then two years later for what appears to be, and news reports are hard to come by, a day or part of a day when Michael Jackson was playing Budapest. The main charge, as always, is that Robson once said that Michael Jackson didn't abuse him, testified under oath, in fact, and then changed his story when the Jackson estate turned him down for a job. 
Now, all of those things could have happened. In fact, they all do happen. Wade Robson said that that statement of a timeline, I said he didn't abuse me. I testified he didn't abuse me. I applied for this job. I was turned down for this job as choreographer. It all happened, but also that Michael Jackson abused him. I have to tell you, I wasn't surprised at the weakness of the argument. I have to admit, I have a pretty low opinion of Forbes. It is dicey editorially. It's not Fox News or the Daily Mail. It's not not Breitbart or Celebrity Zingo.biz or whatever, but there, there does seem to be very little quality control over there. And that inkling, hmm, it's in Forbes, aligned with another feeling that I was constantly having as I evaluated the arguments of the Michael Jackson defenders. They felt like the online impassioned ramblings of the 9-11 truthers or the unhinged Hillary is a sex trafficker types or the peak oil crowd, if you remember them. Their screens flash and blink, their clip art greats, their sentences are often ungrammatical, their YouTube videos go on forever, their Twitter handles have four emojis in them. So on the one hand, I say to myself, you are being a snob maybe a a perfectly composed argument snob. And, you know, it's sometimes true that good arguments come in shabby packages. On the other hand, it's like all those miracle cures available only by mail or in this exclusive TV offer. I mean, if it really worked, don't you think doctors would use it? Maybe America's retailers would want in on that? When an argument comes in an indulgent or off-putting or unprofessional package, maybe because, well, it's not necessarily because the argument is bad, but I think what happens is a good argument would have attracted a better journalist, a higher quality publication, a professional TV crew somewhere to put forward the better version of the argument, better than this 30-minute hit job from YouTube, which just seeks to destroy Wade Robson. Wade now claims what triggered his realization that he had allegedly been sexually abused by Jackson as a child was watching his one-and-a-half-year-old son and imagining and visualizing him being sexually abused. Apparently, he needed to imagine and visualize his infant son being sexually abused to be able to muster up any emotion that he could build on his own story of alleged childhood sexual abuse. Mind you, visualizing things that he wanted to turn into reality was no stranger to Wade. In a 2002 interview, he said, Learn how to visualize. If you have a goal, you've got to visualize every little aspect of it. That video, so far, has three quarters of a million views. Now, you might be saying, especially if you're on the Michael Jackson is innocent side, you might be saying, but aren't all correct ideas, didn't, didn't they once come across as crazy? And aren't a lot of crazy ideas, weren't they once thought of as right? Example of the first, the moon landing. Example of the second, dunking witches. But here are some counterexamples, most every other idea ever. Look around you. I'm looking around me right where I am. What do I say? Desk, skyscraper, uh, can of seltzer, plastic fork. None of these ideas were actually wild or deemed impossible or thought unattainable. I mean, to a Cro-Magnon man, sure. But since progress iterates, the builder of a 48-story skyscraper, maybe the first one in the world, certainly thought, I think we could build a 50-story one. Or if that guy was associated with the Trumps, he, he just called it a 50-story one. My point is, I think we go way overboard in making excuses for the implausible with the general notion that things that are in the category of implausible are often correct. I, I don't have the stats. I just don't think they're often correct. I think they're more often than not 
incorrect. And fiction doesn't help in this matter. How many times have you seen a character who's out there peddling conspiracy theories in a movie and he seems wild? Maybe he's a homeless person. Remember the movie Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson? You ever wonder about all these militia groups, survivalist type kooks from the right wing side? They, They say that they're defending the country from the UN troops. These guys are yelling so loud. My theory is, and this is a conspiracy, pal, that they are the UN troops and that they're in place. The infrastructure's ready. It's just a fading company. When the time comes, they'll just take over. We'll all be close. Oswald, yeah, Oswald. That's what I said. Oswald. Or Robert Downey as Scanner Darkly, or John Goodman playing a prepper in the movie Ten Cloverfield Lane. That's, that's how it works. Well, how, how long do we have to wait until it's safe? Depends on proximity to the closest blast. One year, maybe two. Well, in that movie, he was right to prep. In our stories, in our fictional stories, there is a disproportionate number of crazy, easily dismissible theories that turn out to be correct because that's dramatic. And while we know it's not true in real life, we do know that, right? I still think because we experience the story of Michael Jackson as a story on a screen doesn't seem so much different from the story of 9-11 or the story of Benghazi. And it can be treated with a tweet or a long, long YouTube video. I think there are some other dynamics at play. One is I think the, the vast majority of people who watched the documentary or thought much about the accusation against Jackson beforehand pretty much came to the conclusion, this guy's guilty. No need to dedicate our lives to it. But the people who believe he's innocent, for them it becomes a cause. They're more invested. All the passion is on one side, the wrong side, I think. And thinking about this, I have to admit that, now normally, I would say about three years ago, I chalk up the quality, the poor quality of the evidence in the Michael Jackson is innocent camp. I would even chalk up the packaging of that evidence as an indication that There just doesn't exist good evidence that it's probably the case that the guy is guilty, not only because the evidence comes across as shoddy in how it looks, but how it sounds and how it appeals to logic. Everything about it is screaming, this is bad evidence. So I still think that. What's different is back then, I would take all these wild and poorly presented claims, the fact that they were so poorly presented, as an indication that that version of events was failing. No serious people were taking it seriously. And I have to admit that the extremely impassioned, connected, but wrong cohort has advantages in terms of virality and in terms of resilience that I hadn't counted on before. Michael Jackson's misdeeds are appalling. The rebuttals to Michael Jackson's misdeeds are a shambles. But you know, the fact that this ham-handed and tawdry propaganda campaign might be enough to prevent us all from achieving consensus, agreement, and insight, that's actually depressing. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced the hell out of this one. They watch Fisher King and Cloverfield and Scanner Darkly and Eraserhead, and now they're both ranting ceaselessly about laser beams in the Empire State Building. They're not wrong. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, has three emojis in her Twitter handle and can tell you, even if gold doesn't lose its value, that's beside the point if you don't have the right bunker to store it in. The gist. Actually, and I do wish I'd thought of this during the Slimani interview, there is a unisex word for genitals. Going back as far as the song TikTok, that word, of course, is junk. 
Thank you, Kesha. Translators have had it. Oomperu, dapperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.